Welcome to the St. Paul's Episcopal Church podcast. Here, we will share our thoughts, voices, and prayers. St. Paul's is a progressive community of faith with ancient roots. You can find out more about St. Paul's at their website, stpauls.dioup.org, or find us on Facebook. If you would like to share your words on this podcast, send us a message. May God's peace be with you today and always. twice a week, 4.15. Words twice a week on Thursday, series of introductory thoughts and scripture lessons for this Sunday. It's best maybe if you've looked them over or have them at hand to scan as we go along. For this Sunday, that would be Acts chapter 3, verses 12 to 19, Psalm 4, 1 John 3, 1 to 7, and Luke 24, verse 36b to 48. They're presented on a bulleted list, and I use this sound to represent the bullet points and the start of a new thought. Okay, some thoughts on some of the scripture lessons for this Sunday, the third of Easter. Acts 3, 12 to 19. Luke takes a step back. Last week, we read about how the community had come together and thrived. If this was a movie, words would come on the screen saying one week earlier. Luke suggests it is the same power active in both of these stories, Peter and John healing the man and the community coming together. Would we say that it is the same power that brings us together today or something else? Verse 13 to 15, kind of an odd little interjection as Peter makes clear to the listeners that Pilate had decided to release Jesus, but the crowd was really responsible for his death. Doesn't really sound designed to win them over. Peter says they acted in ignorance, but that only works once. From now on, they know. We know. So can we still turn to God and repent? Note that in verse 12, Peter addresses you Israelites, and in verse 19, my friends. Are those two different groups? Does my friends extend the scope? Where are we in the story? Two views of Jesus. The people view viewed Jesus as someone to be rejected and killed. God views viewed Jesus as a suffering servant to be raised. Faith in Jesus' name makes the difference.
People who saw were astonished, but misinterpreted what had happened. Are we astonished? At what? How do we interpret it? Riffing off a piece by Beekner, that if you are not astonished now and then, check to see if you're still alive. Human messengers are conduits of God's power, not the source. Sure, but do we sometimes act as if it were the other way around, particularly in the age of celebrity? Do you have a favorite human messenger? Luke links the story to the past, noting the prophets, but says the locus of divine activity has shifted from the temple to the name of Jesus. Where do we look for the locus of divine activity? I like this observation from Texts for Preaching. The listeners must address their brutalizing failure. Wow. Do we have a brutalizing failure we need to address? You bet. And while the story is particularly addressing the crucifixion, the question extends beyond that. And just as a reminder, it was not they, in any sense of the word, who crucified Jesus. It was, is, us. And extending to verse 19, so that God will send the Messiah. The resurrection is not the final climax of God's activity. It is a beginning. So here's a prayer for the week. God of ultimate meaning and truth, so many of the events of this day confront us with the brutalizing failures in our past. As we turn to Jesus, the locus of divine activity in our reality, forgive us, teach us, guide us into the light of your love, and especially help us heal where we have harmed. We are your children. Help us live as such. We ask, trusting in the power of his name. Psalm 4. This just sounds like a mixture to me. Here's one possible structure that clarified it a bit, for me anyway, not to say this is the only way to look at it, but it works for me. A prayer of someone in deep distress, someone who has been accused. Verse 1, a request prayed to God, and no beating around the bush, just help me, God, like you did before. Verse 2, complaint addressed to the adversaries. Verse 3, a confident word to the adversaries, God will answer and help me. Verse 4 and 5, a little interlude in which the psalmist seems to encourage others in similar predicament towards silence, sacrifice, and trust, somewhat contradicting the psalmist's own behavior. Verse 6, I don't know. Verse 7 to 8, God has answered and brought peace. Verses 1 to 3, trouble is a part of God's life, but God's powerful fidelity is the ultimate truth. And then here's a little idea that might resonate. Coming out of verse 4, ponder it upon your beds. There was apparently sometimes a practice of people in a dispute sleeping in the temple, and perhaps the priests observed their sleep. Was it troubled? Was it peaceful? And drew conclusions. 1 John 3, 1-7. We are like children, John says, when we see our parent we will know how to live. Sin is lawlessness, 
but does that still leave room for exploration and innovation and discovery? A line from W. Paul Jones about Cervantes, whose Don Quixote is a world classic with Quixote symbolizing the courageous person who lives by imagination in a world intent on imprisoning its citizens in narrow literalism. One commentary lists nine possible points. A little more helpful maybe is this idea. Verses 1 to 3 address being children of God and note that it is both actualized and future unrealized. We are and we will be. Verses 4 to 7 address living as children of God and what one writer calls a hard practicality. John says here, do not sin, while before in uh, chapter 1 verse 8 and 2 verse 1, he had said, everyone sins if we say we have no sin. Perhaps he's talking more about orientation than particularity. The child of God is not stuck in habitual sinfulness, but is inclined toward doing right. The term child of God may have struck people in a patriarchal society more forcefully than it does for us, at least those of us in a slightly less patriarchal setting. Piece on the radio this morning about the female biblical scholar who had broken with the church, which said she should be submissive. And then there's a really cute scene in the Cotton Patch Gospel where the boy Jesus in the temple says to Joseph, I must be about my daddy's business. Joe, and kind of winks at the audience. Huh. So what did or do you call your dad? And a note that in some early cultures, religion and morality were not necessarily linked. Religion and various priests interceded with various gods for protection and well-being. Morality was the sphere of the philosophers. Judaism, of course, brought the two together forcefully. A line from Henry Nouwen that really should have been in last week's words, but seems to fit here as well. Jesus sees the evil in this world as the lack of trust in God's love. He makes us see that we persistently fall back on ourselves, rely more on ourselves than on God, and are inclined more to love of self than love of God. So we remain in darkness. If we walk in the light, then we are enabled to acknowledge that everything good, beautiful, and true comes from God and is offered to us in love. Okay, Luke 24, 36b to 48. What is the this they were talking about? If they were talking about Jesus having risen, then why were they so surprised when he appeared? Did they think he had simply risen to heaven and did not expect his, to be a reality on earth? What do we think? And again, the thought from last week with Thomas that we have never experienced Jesus crucified, dead, and buried. Seeing and being offered the chance, at least, to touch and that they were still disbelieving, what pushes you over the line from disbelieving to having faith? A couple of weeks back, we asked if the answer is the Christian gospel, what is the question? It had something to do with jeopardy, I think. Would 
What is verse 46 to 48 be correct? What are we witnesses to? What was rector as a Jesus like? One, not a spirit. Two, a mystery. More than just a resurrected body, but a new life. And not just an immortality of the soul. Christians do not believe that the spirit or the soul escapes into a spirit world when we die, although that's often kind of what we think and say. Understanding comes through the scriptures. Jesus interprets the scriptures, and the scriptures interpret, explain Jesus. A persistent question here, where do, did you learn about Jesus? And the importance of meal fellowship in Luke's resurrection stories. Where do you see that playing out? In the Eucharist? In church potlucks or dinners? In the coffee hour? In meals with the homeless? What's most important in your experience? And then here's a bonus, maybe, thought, alert. This is going to contradict some formal liturgical practice. Reader, listener, be warned. A paragraph on worship practices from Preaching the Revised Common Lectionary. The author has been talking about how it's important for readers to be prepared and maybe prepare the congregation by giving a brief introduction to the lesson. It says, Notice that there is no reason to cite the passage being read. It will probably appear in the day's bulletin, but even if it doesn't, the important thing is to have the people listen, not distract them with information they don't need at the moment. The custom of having people follow along in pew Bibles or their own, or the printed order of worship or the screen, computer, or jumbotron, that's my edition, privatizes what should be a communal happening and in these days of varied translations can create a liturgical babble. Thoughts on that? That's what I got for now.